This is a HeadGum Podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Adam Conover. Welcome to Factually. And let's start off the show today with a little experiment. I'm going to play a short series of musical notes, and I want you to pay attention to the associations that form in your mind when I do. Now, I do want to warn you ahead of time that not only is this a dated and somewhat offensive stereotype, it's also a crappy MIDI file I downloaded from Wikipedia. Okay, here we go. Wow, I did not underplay how crappy that MIDI file was. All right, now, whether or not you heard that and thought, huh, sounds like a racist musical from the 1920s, and you'd be right, I'd be willing to bet that when you heard it, you thought of Asia, and perhaps more specifically, of China. That short musical phrase, called by musicologists the, quote, Oriental riff, is a nine-note musical shorthand for a stereotype called Orientalism. And because of the riff's long use in this country, those notes now have an indelible association with Asian culture in the American imagination. But that is super messed up, because the truth is that melody was invented and popularized solely by Westerners. The first recorded version of the riff is from the 19th century, where an American composer named T. Comer penned it into a rather culturally confused piece called the Grand Chinese Spectacle of Aladdin or the Wonderful Lamp. Now, in case you missed it, Aladdin is not from China historically, so I think it's safe to assume that T. Comer's rendition was not particularly authentic. Um, after Comer's version, the riff started being used over and over again by Western composers who used it to caricature or often to overtly mock Chinese culture. By the early 20th century, it was shown up in pop songs with titles like, quote, Mama's China Twins and Chinatown, My Chinatown, which was written by two dudes named William Jerome and Gene Schwartz. Again, not super authentic stuff here. And of course, it was famously included in the 1974 disco hit Kung Fu Fighting, as well as an untold numbers of pop songs, cartoons, and TV shows as a marker of Chinese or Asian culture. But the fact is, this musical riff, which has for many white Americans become inextricably connected to Chineseness, was a Western invention that has nothing to do with real Chinese Americans or Chinese citizens at all, much less actual Chinese music. In 2014, an NPR reporter played the Oriental riff for a variety of actual Chinese people in China, and most of them said that it didn't sound anything like Chinese music to them at all. And the riff is far from the only harmful stereotype about Asian people that was concocted by Westerners and based on a pure fabrication. Well, to help us unpack the history and myths of Asian stereotypes in America, my guest today is Ellen Wu, a history professor at the University of Indiana and the author of The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. Please welcome Ellen Wu. Ellen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. So uh, let me just put it all out there. You know, growing up as a white kid on Long Island, right? I feel like I ingested a lot of ideas about Asian Americans that stuck with me for a long time um, that uh, I never really questioned because they're just sort of in the ether, right? And uh, I think those are generally referred to as the model minority myth or the model minority stereotype. Could, could you sort of, as a scholar who studies this, uh, could you put into your own words what that myth is and a little bit about where it comes from and, and what it means? Sure. I mean, the model minority stereotype is what we can think of as the dominant stereotype of Asian Americans, um, mostly East Asian, but also I would say South and Southeast Asian, of being like nerdy, smart, hardworking, um, upwardly mobile, but also kind of quiet and not rocking 
the boat, right?、Mm-hmm. So they're sort of like white people adjacent, maybe, <laughs> but not quite white. And sometimes there's even this this like aspirational aspect. There's like the the tiger mom stereotype of the oh so super hardworking and and we should all strive to emulate in a way too. Exactly. Although there is a flip side of that, which is you know maybe too hardworking and then perhaps threatening. <laughs> Um, and so I do think that model minority idea sometimes it's a li- there's a little bit of tension in there too. <laughs> right, but but what strikes me is that the way that a lot of Americans talk about that stereotype is though that's just what's true. That is just、uh, Asian culture, East Asian culture, and you know that's a fact about. These folks and your work, what you came on Adam ruins everything to talk about is how that's not really the case, and how this is really a a very recent story that we tell about these groups. Is that the case? Right. I would say you know the model minority stereotype is not a timeless truth. It's not about some kind of Confucian values, but it's actually rooted in history and came about in a particular historical moment to do certain kinds of. You know, work, political, social work. Okay, well that that makes me really curious. Can you walk us just start from not the beginning of time, but you know, give us a little bit of a、uh, show us how that history worked, how it began. So I'll tell you a little bit about how it began.、Um, the way I understand it is that、um, when Asian immigrants started coming to the United States, really、uh, beginning with the California Gold Rush. We get a lot of Chinese, and then they're followed by Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos,、um, and South Asians, Asian Indians. At that time, there was a racial stereotype of Asian immigrants as being devious and sneaky and evil and despicable and completely un-American, and for all those reasons,、mm. Com- completely incapable of becoming Americans. And certainly, they were understood racially as being not white. But right around World War II, that whole typecasting of Asian immigrants began to be a problem for the United States because the U.S. was really invested in fighting a global war against Nazis, against fascists, and、uh. the values that those Nazis and fascists stood for. And racism, you know, white supremacy—that was really one of, obviously, the big.、Um, Ideological underpinnings of of those groups, right? So that, that's like what Nazism is kind of all about. Yeah, it's like their brand, you know. <laughs> so,、um, and so the United States, you know, U.S. leaders, politicians, and leaders, and、um, you know, cultural observers, social scientists, they did a lot of thinking about this. And one area that they really、um, spent a lot of attention on was. Racial discrimination in American society, and the main problem at that time, of course, was the issue of what people called the Negro problem, quote unquote.、Um, that is the status of African Americans. But related to that Negro problem, as as it was called at the time, was the problem what people called the Oriental problem, which was mostly at that time a West Coast problem. So that was the decades-long history of Asian exclusion. Meaning that Asians were barred from coming into the United States, becoming naturalized citizens. They were subject to、uh, residential segregation, ed- educational school segregation,、uh, you know, intermarriage laws, and so forth.、Um, and so all of this became a problem, especially as the United States was looking to fight the specific war against Japan. And that really became this incentive for America to rethink how it was treating Asian Americans. And and I will say that Asian Americans, and especially at this time the largest groups, Japanese and Chinese Americans, were also really invested in,、um, you know, shifting or overturning the popular image of them as these despised Orientals. Because, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, it really.、Um, Hurt their chances to achieve, you know, a good life for themselves and their children. Yeah, I mean, if you're being stereotyped as a as a sneaky other, that that is not great for you in society. Yeah, like imagine going to a job interview and you know, sneaky other, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. That probably hurt your chances of getting hired or promoted. So what happens then in the 1940s and 50s is a lot of you know is a lot of、um, is this kind of intersection between 
uh, ra- what we can call racial reforms, and then more global um, factors that drive um, changes in the way that the United States deals with its racial minority groups. Uh, in the case of Asian Americans, um, the most famous example, of course, would be the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans uh, who, uh, at the time of the Pearl Harbor bombing, were living in Washington, Oregon, and California. Mm-hmm. And so between about 110,000 to 120,000 of those folks, uh, really without any hard evidence of any kind of disloyalty or sabotage or criminal activity, were uh, rounded up and incarcerated by the United States government. Um, completely, you know, really in a complete act of uh, racial profiling, essentially. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's uh, by far one of the most shameful things our country has ever done. I mean, it's it's up there with mistreatment of Native Americans and, and other populations like that. But I mean, yeah, to incarcerate an entire population of people solely on ethnic basis is uh, very bad. It's a very bad thing to do. And it bothers me also. People, people occasionally underplay it now and they say, oh, well, it was done to Germans too, but not in nearly the same numbers. Like it was a very small number of German-Americans occasionally in turn but like with Japanese Americans it was it was most of the Japanese American population of the entire country and it was hundreds of thousands of people right exactly and and I think the other comparison is that for let's say Germans and Italians I mean those were more done on a case-by-case basis this is we're talking here in the case of Japanese Americans rounding up entire communities yeah and and not really giving I mean they supposedly had a choice but for most people they didn't really have um, options you know I always tell my students you know we don't we know now how the war ended at the time they didn't so they really could not look into the future and see what was going to happen mm. and so for most people it just made the most sense and and really they didn't have any other options but to go along with this removal and um, imprisonment. So anyway, so kind of connecting back to your original question, you know, again, this is like the kind of pinnacle of how Asians in the United States had long been typecast as sneaky and untrustworthy, right? And now like, it's like they're the enemy among us and they need to be rounded right. up. Right, you got to put them in prison just because they're so sneaky. They might be, any of them could could be an enemy agent. So they all have to be rounded up. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the uh, ultimate in discrimination. Right, like literally they had, um, you know, high-ranking military officials saying, uh, the you know, j- the fact that they haven't actually done anything wrong kind of proves that they will do something wrong. Like they're just that sneaky. <laughs> really? Uh, because they're they're sleeper agents. It's an entire exactly. hundreds of thousands of sleeper agents. My God. You can't be too careful. Wow. You know, babies, toddlers, you name it. Yeah. Um, so And many, many of whom are still alive today who, who our country did this to. That's right. That's right. Um, so... Once they, once these Japanese Americans, you know, we're talking again between 110 and 120,000 people, once they end up being locked away, then the government has a new problem on its hands. And that is to figure out what they're going to do with these people. You know, I mean, the, assuming the war does not last indefinitely, which, you know, it probably wouldn't. And um, as strange as it may seem, we can think of the, the folks who ran the camps in their own way as being liberals of the time, hmm. which is to say that unlike uh, nativists and exclusionists who would just rather have all people of Japanese ancestry booted out of the United States forever, um, the liberal administrators, you know, they thought about this and they, and they um, imagined this as an opportunity uh, for Japanese Americans in some ways to have a fresh start in American society. Like within the camps, they could prove they were good Americans by their activities um, in terms of, uh, you know, learning English or learning American values. You know, each of the camps basically set up their own internal kind of like governments. I think of them kind of like student councils where you can pretend to make decisions, but the authorities can always (laughs) override them, you know? Right. Oh, Um, we're going to have, we're going to have extra toilet paper in the camp bathroom or just like, Right. That kind of pre- promise. Or sell cigarettes in the vending machines or whatever, you know. <laughs> and um, anyway, so, but they, there was a lot of activity during the camps and um, a lot of actually publicity about um, the loyal, patriotic Japanese Americans. And part of this um, was because 
um, administrators and then certain Japanese American leaders came up with a kind of, I would say, like a plan for how to how to exit all these people, sort of move them out of the camps and into American society and and have a future in America. And the two ways to do that were military service and then what they called you know, resettlement in their words, which was mm. to um, encourage Japanese Americans to move away from their original communities on the West Coast. So if you think about, let's say, little Tokyo, Los Angeles, and have them scatter throughout the country and basically like fade into the white middle class. This was the idea. And they, you know, again, they literally said, we don't want to end up with something like a Native American reservation. Like, that's not what we want. So we want to encourage these folks to assimilate. Yeah, this is assimilation. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's actually a really interesting um, frame, like a framing shift, right? The idea that you can go from being thought of as completely incapable of becoming American and assimilating to actually, yes, you can assimilate if you follow these certain steps. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean about how that would have been a liberal position at the time. I mean, right. uh, on an on an objective scale or by our own standard, we might say, well, that's that's actually a uh, not a, a kind of regressive view to say that uh, you know these folks should should uh, sort of be forcibly assimilated. But at the same time, when you're uh, when the when the opposition is saying, well, no, these are these are others who will never have a place in American society and should be forcibly expelled. That's kind of a it's kind of a middle ground position. It's sort of like a uh, oh, it's kind of like the nice warden at the prison who's like, oh, you can reform yourself in here. It's like that kind of attitude. So a little bit paternalistic, but a little bit more positive than the alternative. Yeah, I'd say that exactly. Paternalistic and you know, coercive, right? Mm-hmm. But still, it's an op- it's an option, uh, and it's a new kind of option. Uh, and so, um, not every so uh, these were very controversial at the time. I mean, the the more famous story is really the one of the military service. And I think it's interesting that the government anticipated that people would sort of just like rush to sign up to the military into the military. Um, and there were certain Japanese American leaders who thought of themselves as um, spokespeople for the community. But that was, again, a very controversial uh, position to take. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they they took that on themselves and they tried to promote um, this uh, avenue for assimilation. And that was a really, really contentious uh, proposal within the camps. Um, and um, You know, the idea about asking people to swear their loyalty to a country that is just presume them all to be criminals and lock them up. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, again, it's this whole bunch of weird choices that people had to make. Now, I will say that um, there were many Japanese Americans who volunteered. Others were drafted. And uh, overall... The fact that so many thousands of Japanese Americans did serve the United States uh, very loyally and faithfully during World War II had a huge impact on um, recasting that public image, like turning it around from that enemy alien image to one of a model patriotic citizen. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the beginnings of how Asian Americans came to be thought of as a model minority. So Americans often talk about the characteristics of racial groups as though, oh, that's just how people are, right? Um, but what you're saying is this was, we very recently had a very different idea of uh, what characterized uh, Asian Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, and that this was a recent shift and that it was actually purposeful in this case, that it was like sort of a reform effort on everybody's part to, to change the, the view of, of Asian Americans. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, actually, it was literally, there were, like, literally publicity efforts, you know. There was PR mm. from, like, the Army, from the uh, Department of the Interior who ran the camps, from the Japanese American um, Citizens League, which was, like, the leading uh, and very controversial Japanese American uh, political organization of the mid-20th century. And so they were literally promoting this image of Japanese Americans as loyal patriotic citizens. I mean, obviously, because there were actually people doing that work on the ground, you know, in the armed forces. Um, But that work on the ground allowed them to tell a new story about Japanese Mm. Americans. 
And then that story gained traction and became useful because the United States was really interested in proving to the world, you know, on one hand, just uh, they were worried that Japan and the Axis powers were exploiting uh, racial tensions in the U.S. uh, to kind of called the United States hypocritical in, in this war effort, right? So they were worried about that ah. Axis propaganda. Um, and then certainly as the United States moved into fighting the Cold War after, you know, by the late 40s and the 1950s, again, these kinds of stories became really useful. So uh, I think one of the, um, in the Saturday Evening Post in 1955, there was this relief really remarkable feature story called California's Amazing Japanese. It's 1955. <laughs> and there's all these great photos, you know, of um, like the woman who was Miss Little Tokyo or something and farmers in Gardena and, and, and Judge John Iso. I think there's a street named after him in Little Tokyo. Hmm. Um, and it was all about how they had remarkable, remarkably rebounded from this trauma of World War II and they'd proven their loyalty to the United States. And it's, there's this kind of irony in the war that the war actually gave them a chance to become American. And they took that chance and they, they all are doing so well. And it's only, you know, a decade after the war. Well, that's a, uh, I mean, first of all, that, uh, what a positive story, right? Like that's a story anybody would want to hear uh, about anybody because uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, wow, wonderful turnaround. Everyone's so happy now and, and et cetera. But w- what you're describing, it sounds like a specific propaganda effort that in those years, uh, you know, opponents of the United States in, in Asia wanted to say, oh, look, the United States is hypocritical. Look how poorly America treats its Asian minority population and the United States was trying to say no 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 this is look how look how Asian Americans are thriving look how Japanese Americans are thriving look how Chinese Americans are thriving is that is that the case is that what was going on yeah I think so and I think what um and you know I'm building on the work of lots of scholars here too and I think what is going on is it's, it's what you're saying um, that the United States was able to point to this story as an example of how democracy can correct its own mistakes. In other words, hmm. you know, we realize, rec- we recognize we made a mistake, but we're trying to correct it. And actually, in trying to correct it, we've got these great results. Now, the other part of that story is basically that Japanese Americans have also um, done their part by being good, loyal citizens. So they're not really rocking the boat. So remember, again, this is 1955. And what we're talking about is this moment in U.S. history, right, when racial tensions are really, really kind of um, brewing and bubbling up in in the U.S. South and the civil rights movement, the yeah. black freedom movement is really gaining uh, steam. So, so part of that um, model minority um, stereotyping of the 1950s is that uh, Japanese Americans and, and Chinese Americans too are, um, you know, they are will they are, they're good team players. You know, they don't rock the boat. They mm-hmm. follow the rules, and and that's how they get ahead. Yeah, uh, I'm also reminded of a story that I heard, and and you probably know more about this than I do. But that the there was even a concerted effort in the middle part of the century to like revitalize uh, Chinatowns as being almost like tourist destinations for white Americans to go visit. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Um, so. So, okay, we can like, turn the conversation a little bit. So the other main group that the model minorities, um, orig- like its origins were really rooted in was Chinese Americans. Yeah, and, 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 so, and, and I'm sorry, by the way, I don't mean to conflate, but it is it is sort of a linked story in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of it as like like a DNA, like that double helix thing where they're kind of winding around each other, you know, <laughs> but they're connected. Okay? Right. And um, so as far as the Chinese story goes, in some ways it's similar, right? We've got this um, pattern where earlier immigration from the 19th century into the early 20th century, um, Americans thought of Chinese immigrants as all those things, the sneaky, despised, they eat rats, they can't be trusted. Um, And then World War II breaks out again, and the United States is fighting this war against Japan in the Pacific, and its very important ally in the Pacific is China. And so that actually spurs Congress and the president to overturn 60 years of Chinese exclusion acts in immigration and citizenship law. 
and really celebrate Chinese, Chinese Americans as what they call their allies, mm. which is kind of interesting because it's not just like they are fellow citizens, but they're also still kind of foreign, you know. So at the same time that Japanese Americans are being, uh, you know, interned in camps, Chinese Americans are sort of being, oh, these are our allies because China is our ally in this war. That's right. They're they're kind of like our friends and our allies, but they're also American like us. Like I'm also thinking about, um, and you can look this up online. I think the Bancroft Library at Berkeley has um, these photos online, but Look Magazine, which was like Life Magazine, they had lots of pictures. In In 1944, they ran... Um, a feature on San Francisco Chinatown and how American it was. You know, they have like a girl eating an ice cream cone and grandpa reading the Sunday funnies with his like grandsons. And so, yeah, again, there's a lot of um, PR going going out at this time, celebrating Chinese as just like another ethnic American group. And Mm -hmm. we are Americans all and we're all contributing to the war effort. And actually, that works really great for Chinese Americans. You know, they um, they also signing up for the military and really feeling like for the first time, I think um, Kerry McWilliams said something like, and he was like a great liberal thinker of the time that, you know, the war has brought the Chinese out of Chinatown and they should like lock the door behind them or slam the door huh. behind them or something. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, they're, they're breaking out of this um, segregated enclave for the first time. And yeah. it's really, really exciting. But the problem is, it's it's all because, you know, if you think about the driver of this opportunity, again, it's like geopolitical. So once China becomes an enemy during, with the Cold War mm. you know, after 1949, it does pose then a problem. Chinese Americans actually, like in 1950, you know, China also, the, I should say the People's Republic of China enters the Korean War on the side of uh, the North Koreans. And this is really worrisome for Chinese in the United States who think, you know, what happened to the Japanese Americans during World War II is going to happen to them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so kind of back to your question about Chinatowns, what Chinatown leaders try to do then in the 1950s really is, again, I would say like an internal PR um, project where they want the goal is to convince other Americans that Chinese Americans are, you know, American as you and me. Um, we're not sneaky. Um also, come spend your tourist dollars in Chinatown. So there's a lot of interesting... Right. Uh, there, yeah. There's a little piece of the Far East right in your own town, and you can go down there, and it'll be safe and nice, and you can get some dumplings and look at the big pagoda we just built and, and then go on home. Yeah, it's like safe exoticism. Yeah. And, and really, um, you know, for a lot of Chinese, the tourist economy was still like a major source of livelihood. So San Francisco Chinatown, um, just to take that example... In like the 50s and 60s, they did spend some, um, you know, community leaders did try to figure out how to fix it up and make it like enticing for tourists. And and actually, one of the stories that they told, partly to entice tourists, was this idea that Chinese families um, are like these model families, like the children. So especially the children. The children are super well behaved. They love to study. They listen to their elders. Mm. Um, and they're just like these like model children. And that's like a really key kind of messaging and story that um, gets circulated about Chinese Americans in the 1950s. And why it gets a lot of uh, attention, I think, is because um, there's a big juvenile delinquency panic, you know, so if you've seen like Rebel Without a Cause. You know, <laughs> right, that was a whole, that was like the the vaping of <laughs> like the 1950s. <laughs> exactly. was, oh, all the kids are wearing jeans and riding motorcycles and going off cliffs. And it was like a pop culture panic around the idea of delinquency. Exactly. Because you know where denim, you know where that leads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere good. Nowhere good. And so, yeah, there's this juvenile delinquency panic all over the country. And um, and and then there's also a real kind of cultural conservatism, right? Again, the 1950s, you know, we always think about, like, leave it to Beaver and sort of these, like, suburban families and mom baking cookies and dad going to work. And that kind of cultural um, conservatism, that emphasis really, um, I think, becomes uh, kind of this... Um, you know, it, it makes it so that these stories about Chinese Americans having these model families, also who were not anti, who were anti-communist, I should say, 
model anti-communist families. Um, that story can gain a lot of attraction, and it really does. Um, all like a lot of major newspapers and magazines run these stories, and um, you know, it's just a really, um, really interesting way to evidence of how Chinatown leaders were actually able to gain some gain some traction and shift that popular narrative of, of the Chinese. And one reason, especially why this is so important, it's not just because of, um, you know, Red China, as they called it, um, and the threat that it might pose to um, the future of Chinese in the U.S., but it's also because in the in the mid 1950s, the federal government decided to crack down uh, on years of unauthorized immigration in the Chinese community. Um, so 1956, they actually, the, the United States government actually issued all these like mass subpoenas to community groups in, in Chinatowns across the country and basically trying to smoke out, you know, or just like pull out all of these um, ch- what they call paper, paper families, like um, cha- like literally like chains of, you know, migrant, migrant chains who had all come to the U.S. on false documents, right, as a way to evade the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Mm. So Chinatown leaders were also, like, kind of panicked that, you know, this mass subpoena and this crackdown would um, really, you know, really pull the image of Chinese in the U.S. back to the exclusion times and really and really just be hurtful to everybody. And, you know, and everybody would be, like, again, sort of racially profiled and criminally suspect. So this story of the of the model minority myth that uh, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and Asian Americans more broadly are, uh, you know, good children, strong family units, uh, hardworking, successful, patriotic. That was that story was like a deliberate construction in the middle of the century, both by the government and by uh, Asian American groups themselves. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's definitely the evidence that I found. I mean, I want to say, Adam, for sure, I want to um, make it clear. This is not to diminish anybody's individual accomplishments. Sure. Or, you know, actually, if they have a strong family life, I mean, that's great, right? But, yes, it was also a publicity effort, a messaging, um, you know, situation, and was really very intentional. It was very intentional as for Asian Americans about making sure that they might still have a, a good future in the United States. And then for, you know, the United States government and other folks, um, these stories became useful for other kinds of political agendas. Well, I want to dig into what this story means for Asian Americans and, and all of us in America today. But first, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Ellen Wu. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, Alan, we've been talking about how the model minority stereotype, you know, doesn't, it's, you know, not really an inherent characteristic of Asian Americans at all, if anybody believed that. It's a, uh, you know, it's a story that was constructed in the, in the middle of the century due to deliberate historic forces. I want to talk, though, about what that story means to us today, both in the Asian American community and to Americans at large. How does that affect us? How does that idea that we have about Asians in America, what, what effects do we see from that? Okay, so great and complicated question. Um, again, I'll try to break it down a little bit. It's more of a topic for the, for the, next, for the <laughs> second half of the podcast, you know, just like... Okay, <laughs> right. Um, so I think the... So one piece we have to um, make sure we understand before we can sort of fully get into your question is what happened to those stories after the 1950s. Um, and then in the 1960s, the stories of model Japanese and Chinese American families and, you know, model citizens and patriots, those stories then got picked up for a different uh, <clears throat> different reason mm. by both liberals and conservatives. And that was um, when Again, um, liberals, as, as we talked about earlier, you know, were really wringing their hands over what to do about this so-called Negro problem. And, you know, it's the 1960s and things are really heating up. Right. And, and the black freedom movement is, is persisting and <clears throat> becoming, you know, taking different directions. That make I, I would say make white people pretty uncomfortable, regardless of which, you know, side of where their politics were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. <clears throat> And amidst that whole swirl of debate and and sort of hand-wringing, definitely liberal politicians and thinkers like the famous Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, who was known for uh, his very explosive, you know, report on the Negro family where he pinpoints a lot of the troubles of African-Americans on their family structure. And And he was the the, consummate liberal. He's a titan of liberal Senate politics. Yeah, and and so it's pretty interesting. A lot of times today, people think of the model minority stereotype, which I'll get to in a minute as you know, so-called like it is sort of a conservative racial stereotype, but it actually has liberal roots. Mm. Um, and so, in this moment when Moynihan's under a lot of fire for this policy report, you know, um, putting a lot of blame essentially on family structures of African Americans in terms of how to explain. Um, their poverty, uh, one of his defenses is that he says, look, let's look at the example of, you know, Orientals, Japanese, Chinese. 25 years ago, we thought they were colored, but, you know, they're not really colored anymore. You know, mm. they've, they've achieved socioeconomic mobility. And the reason uh, is that they have these um, stable families. Um, and so that idea, right, that they're, they were... You know, they had stable families and they, um, you know, remember the kids not getting into trouble. Basically, another way of saying that is that they they weren't um, predisposed to criminal activities, like they weren't criminals. Mm. Um, Those are really, um, I'd say, very electrified kind of ideas, you know, in the 1960s. And it's uh, essentially what happens is that um, Asian Americans come to be thought of as not just model, but model minorities in the sense that they're not like African-Americans. Yeah. Other, you know, They're not like other black and brown people that have all these problems like poverty and crime. Yeah, it's that, it, so it becomes a way to sort of, what, ca- cast dispersions on black families saying, oh, if, if, hey, if they had the family structure, the excellent, if they made the excellent choices of how to organize their culture, in quotation marks, that, uh, uh, that Asian Americans do, then, hey, it would be fine. So therefore it's, it's kind of all on them. Is that the idea? I think that's a lot of it, right? Like culture, culture is you. It's not 
you know, us, it's not society. It's like what's what's in you. So if you change what's in you, then maybe you, you won't have these problems that you are dealing with. Right. Right. And, and it's and it is funny because you do hear that. Uh, I mean, I've heard exactly that argument from conservative commentators on race. And, and it is interesting to yeah hear that that stemmed from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who, again, is like one of the foremost liberals of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, it's not just him, of course, but he, yeah. I would say he's one of the most interesting people that is like using this idea and kind of circulating it, right? Mm-hmm. Another, I think, um, I'll just throw this into another interesting example is sort of the contrast is when um, uh, in the late 60s, uh, people would sometimes talk about, compare, you know, what was happening in Detroit or Newark, you know, that's code for African Americans, right? Hmm. With um, the harmonious relations of, of Hawaii, which at that time, you know, uh, you know, a majority Asian population and, um, uh, and again, and Hawaii had been um, narrated or framed as a racial paradise, you know, a place where everyone got along. <laughs> Uh, story, a, a racial paradise that the United States <laughs> illegally seized from its right, original like, terms and conditions may apply. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we did a whole episode. If you want to <laughs> go watch Adam Ruins' Vacation, if you're curious about that incredibly messed up history. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't mean to go. Oh, I have seen here. that one. I was very excited to see that. <laughs> yes. And so, again, and that whole story did a lot of other stuff, right? It sort of allowed United States to erase that whole history of illegal and overthrown conquests, right? And um, and kind of wrote indigenous um, Native Hawaiians out of the picture in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, there's that contrast, you know, Hawaii, Honolulu is not like Detroit or Newark, okay? So, again, this idea that um, Asian... Asian Americans are what I call, you know, decidedly or definitively not black. So that's a new kind of racial position um, for Asians in, in the United States by the late 1960s. And the other big transition that's happening in the 60s is that the United States reforms its immigration laws. Um, And that's some of the, I mean, the impulse for that is goes back to that whole, like, you know, we need to project the right image for ourselves as a leader of the free world. So we're going to get rid of some of our discriminatory, you know, our discriminatory um, immigration policy Mm -hmm. that had been put into place in the 1920s, basically to screen out. Um, you know, the undesi- undesirables of Southern and Eastern Europe. <clears throat> and so after 1965, when the U.S. decides it's going to select for immigrants based on, uh, basically based on how they could contribute to the economy, to the health of the economy, and or, uh, you know, family reunification. So they actually, they didn't think it would lead to a bunch of Asians and other brown people coming in, but that's what happened. Um, <clears throat> but the folks from Asia that came in after 1965, tended to be people um, who were highly educated, you know, or, you know, maybe they were like my own, like my father came as a graduate student in pharmacy and then ended up staying, you know, to permanent resident and then citizen. Um, And so after the 1960s, the demographics of Asian America really change. uh, And what it, what we see is the influx of lots of educated people, right? And these are folks that because of the what has happened with civil rights and everything, they actually get to reap some of those benefits. They can move into the suburbs usually without much problem, or they can take certain kinds of um, jobs. So tell me, tell me if I've got this right. The, the immigration laws were reformed to specifically select for folks who could contribute to the economy, meaning highly educated, upwardly mobile pharmacy grad students, for instance, <laughs> uh, to specifically select those people to enter. And then, yeah, because of better conditions, those people were able to do well. And that contributed to our stereotype of, of uh, Asian Americans being successful because we were specifically admitting successful Asian Americans in maybe that I'm oversimplifying, but I mean no, that sounds that sounds pretty clear, right? Exactly. It's, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's I mean, so that is so uh, on it on its face. Like that's so, it's so blunt. I almost worried I was overdoing it, but it's like yeah, we we let in a certain type of person, then said, oh, they're all that way. <laughs> yeah, and and we could say that because we already had this. Uh, you know, there was already this like foundation of common sense, you know, racial common sense. Like, mm. Asians are like this. And then now we can, they're really like this, you know, and it kind of goes viral in the sense that you see all over the country um, where maybe places that didn't even have many Asian Americans 
before the mm-hmm. 1965 changes, you know, places like where I grew up, which is Indianapolis, right? And then all of a sudden, you you get this, um, you know, more uh, visible visible populations of Asian Americans, many of you know, many of whom are highly not all. I mean, there were certainly sure after the 70s, you know, refugees, for instance, from Southeast the Southeast Asian wars, but a lot of folks highly educated. That's right. It's just so strange to create a self-fulfilling prophecy like that and not see it, right? <laughs> that uh, if you, yeah, if you're if you're allowing one type of person and then you're making an assumption, oh, every every type of person is that way. That's, uh, I mean, it's cl- you're skewing your sample in this very obvious way that uh, was somehow invisible to Americans as they were doing it. I think you know, um, and. I think there is a kind of it's it's a little. I always think of Nelson on The Simpsons. You know, he goes. Ha, ha. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like that in the sense that at the time, policymakers, because family re- reunification was, um, you know, written into that law, they just kind of assumed that the people coming would be joining people who were already here, mm. basically, uh, you know, white folks with um, roots in Europe. Uh, but because of of who actually wanted to come, and then you know the the demands of the as the United States economy was transitioning to more of a I would call knowledge based economy rather than industrial based economy, um, that's how we get these large numbers of of a- educated agents. Yeah, so I, it wasn't you know I don't think um, certainly policymakers did not intend for that to happen. Mm. Um, but then once it started happening, it seemed. Right, you're you're right. It seemed to be that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. I see. But but looking at a narrow lens at the uh, you know, the folks who did come to America um and drawing a, a a conclusion from that 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 really shouldn't have been drawn. I think um yeah, it's just this one of these unpredictable, you know, unintended consequences of history. But but yeah. I think it um it makes it sometimes hard to understand that um, just like any other group, there's a lot of diversity within Asian America. There's right. like, you know, if we count like what, some 19 million people, not everybody, uh, you know, is a certain way, you know? I mean, that's just the reality. But you can't always see that if if you assume that all Asians fit into this model minority box. Well, yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, I've sort of been conducting this interview under the assumption that we all realize that stereotypes are inherently false. (laughs) That, you know, uh, no, of course, every group is far more diverse than any one particular image of it that we have. Um, But uh, let's break down a little bit, you know, the the diversity of Asian Americans that, you know, is not captured within this stereotype. If you can just elaborate on that point a little bit yeah i think that um i'd have to you know go back and study my the exact statistics but the way i understand it is that um asian americans in some ways uh, if we group all these people together again we're talking 19 million people um, with our origins in many different places throughout the asia pacific um, coming to the united states under all kinds of different circumstances so of course there's going to be diversity, right? Whether it's um, socioeconomic, but also we could say religious, uh, linguistic, um, and then just all kinds of other stuff like politically diverse, you know, diverse in interests and talents and, and so forth. Um, I, I think um, the demographics of the patterns seem to be that there's a lot um, what social scientists sometimes call um bifurcated, to use a fancy word, in, in, in the sense that you have a lot of people at the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum, but you also have a lot of people at the at the, the bottom end, too, mm. right? Um, certainly issues that don't get a lot of attention, I think, um, a lot of times is the fact that, you know, like undocumented immigration is an issue um, in Asian American communities. Um, and certainly, um, you know, poverty is an issue. Um all kinds of other, you know. And, and those are not issues that we talk about in our political conversation as being Asian American issues. We're always, you know, we're usually talking about other groups or when we're having conversations about problems in the Asian American community where that those aren't the problems that come up because they don't fit our stereotype. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. Those things get kind of hidden or, or just pushed aside. Well, what? yeah, what are other ways that this uh, model minority stereotype affects Asian Americans today? You know, it's funny to me how, or it's just kind of interesting how the model minority stereotype seems to be, it's like this, like, 
um, infection or something or virus that you can't shake. Like it's mm. just sort of always there, and then it flares up every once in a while. Um, and you know, most recently, it's come up with like the Andrew Yang campaign, right. for instance, and then the whole flap with you know Shane Gillis and the the SNL. Um, situation i read uh i read an interesting article in i think it was the la times just the other day about andrew yang's candidacy and and about how it was just you know speak i don't want to speak for anybody but the the quotes i read uh from you know different asian americans some were oh very excited that oh wow a, a legitimate you know presidential candidate who really proves that you know asian americans can do anything but then other folks were like wow but his you know he they felt at times that he that he was trading on this specific uh myth in ways that made them a little uncomfortable, but they weren't sure how they felt about it. And it was, you know, it seemed like a very complex issue. Yeah, that's the sense I get, too. You know, he, it's an interesting case because he, here we have this um, presidential candidate um, who is surprising in the sense that, you know, he's doing something I would say a lot of people don't expect, you know, Asian Americans to do, which is to be um, in politics, for one, and um, and then sort of unabashedly embracing, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not. I mean, that, that's where people get uncomfortable, uh, this this model minority stereotype, right? Like mm-hmm. like, ma- like math or whatever is his slogan. Yeah, people and, chant math at his rallies. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, like math is awesome. Like everybody, you know, <laughs> math is great. I love I'm, math. Not, a, not to put down math at all. Um, and all of that is is interesting, I think, because um, it's almost like an inside joke, but then what it is, it's making some of the insiders kind of uncomfortable, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't recognize that that next layer, which is to say um, he might be playing with this stereotype, it, then it might just seem to be reinforcing a stereotype that, that I think a lot of Asian Americans, including myself, uh, think is harmful not just because it obscures a lot of the issues and diversities in our communities, but it's long history of of um, being used to justify really um, anti-black racism or inequities in our society against different marginalized groups. Right. There's it, It's a... Even to the extent that the stereotype is beneficial, and I don't want to say that it is um, but you know I've heard the argument made it's still a cudgel that's being used against other Americans um, and there is there is a degree to which like the stereotype has sort of like hidden lacunae right like things in, things that it does not include that are not part of like you know the stereotype is Asians excel at math that's the sort of most basic version of the model minority stereotype or a very a very you know clear small part of it but there's a lot of other things that are very important that the stereotype does not include that Asian Asians excel at, like say sports, for example, is not part of it and is like sort of left out of our assumption of things that, you know, Asian Americans might be good at. Yeah. Or not good at, right? Like maybe you're not good at math or you're not good at sports or whatever, or, you know, the ukulele or. So so at the end of the day, it's a, it's a limited box, right? It's, which is, it's still sort of a straight jacket that's being placed on Asian Americans that they fit something that is not placed on me as a white American, particularly. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, that you aren't being, (laughs) those things aren't placed on you. Right. But, um, but yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's a, um, it's a straitjacket, and then um, it it just it has all these consequences sometimes that people don't always you know we can't always foresee, but we we can looking backwards we can see that there have been certain patterns right, um, and then and then there are I think um, I think it's I'll just put this in here too because this is something we've talked about before. There's another stereotype I think since 9/11 especially that has impacted some people in the Asian American community and then outside of it, and that is the idea of like the so-called Muslim ter- uh, terrorist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think one uh, one issue that you know Asian Americans have is just even defining what Asian American <laughs> right, right. We've been <laughs> we've been talking about. East Asian, or right, we've been talking about Chinese and Japanese uh, Americans primarily during this conversation. But Asia is such a large <laughs> landmass; it encompasses right. It encompasses uh, uh, again South Asians and and uh, et cetera. There's there's so many groups under this, and we have different stereotypes about all of them. 
Right. And it's it's sometimes it's confusing. Right. So, again, we, when we talked about that post-1965 wave of educated folks uh, and how the mono-minority stereotype really did expand to kind of encompass those groups. So we can, for instance, think about, you know, if, if I said spelling bee winner, who would you picture in your mind? You might think like um, an Indian kid right from yeah. Ohio or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so I. I would put that in that model minority stereotype box, right? Uh, but at the same time, we've seen, especially since 9-11, is a really hurtful stereotyping, racial, religious profiling of brown people in the United States um, from, you know, assumed to be from certain parts of the world um, as terrorists. And that has been extremely, you know, extremely harmful and really deadly serious consequences in a, in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, it's just like an, it's another one of these very limiting uh, stereotypes that I think have really high stakes in the sense that they, they, they do things, you know, they do a kind of cultural work that justifies um, how our country treats certain groups of people. Yeah. And they're so, they're so deep down as well. I mean, it, it's, uh, because there's a lot of nuance to these images and to these ideas, uh, and it's often a little bit trickier to unpack them in a way, or they don't get unpacked as much uh, in the media as some of our blunter stereotypes about about other groups. In my experience, there's just there's just a certain a certain you know difficulty to them that means they don't get exhumed quite as often. I think so. And I think exhuming things would force, you know, force us as a country to reckon with a long and really unjust history of treatment of different kinds of groups and then figure out what we really have to do about that. Right. So it's just maybe just easier to say, well, um, (laughs) you know, brown people are terrorists, black people are criminals. uh, I don't know. East Asian people are good at math. But um, then that (laughs) just allows us to. In some ways, that shorthand allows us to evade a lot of this real hard digging and, and real honest look at the evidence. How how would you like? What sort of conversation would would you like to see happen? I mean, uh, it, like, what does that honest look look like if we were to actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, psych ourselves up and and do the difficult work we need to do? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm really into this idea of reparations Mm. for slavery and slavery's aftermath, you know, Jim Crow and and mass incarceration. I think that is really the important place to start. And I think the other important place really would be to reckon with the treatment, our country's treatment of indigenous peoples and um, land theft and then resource theft and, and think about how to try to make those things right for their descendants. Um, I think, you know, another thing I try to do as an educator is to um, really highlight how what all these different threads are interconnected. And um, and so one thing, I mean, you know, maybe those things seem really big and daunting, and they are as, as part, like reparations and such. Um, but meanwhile, what we can do, you know, as part of that is to educate ourselves and really um, be willing to do things like read and, and talk and um, learn I guess learn American history maybe in ways that, you know, we were never taught it. And that, that's why I really appreciate what you guys do on your show. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel that my feeling is that the first job is to take a clear eyed look at this history and how these trends actually occurred and, and what was actually done to, you know, our fellow citizens or fellow, you know, folks who are, who live in this country, because, you know, you, you sort of get, uh, you know, uh, all the Asian American history I learned in school was, ah, the internment camps, those are pretty bad. Moving on. (laughs) Right. It was like really brief. Uh, It was like a paragraph in the textbook, you know? Um, And uh, the rest of the, uh, of this history is not something that we ever went into, especially how the history then intersected with the uh, history of, of black Americans and, and everything else. It's, it's just, uh, it's not something that we often have the stomach to dig into, it seems like, but it also seems like the most important work we can do when examining our own history. 
Yeah, you know, I think about, uh, I have a friend, Charlotte Brooks, who's an Asian-American historian. She's white. And uh, I love how she says Asian-American history is her history, too. And Mm. that's always just stuck with me. Like, you know, it might seem like this... Uh, uh, just some kind of side thing or not really that important to know. But what I like about doing Asian American history is it gives you this new entry point into rethinking, you know, American history. And then we come out with new insights because we took this other perspective. And then we can kind of see how things are all connected. Yeah. Well, I really thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it. It's, It's been really wonderful. Thanks for the invite. It was a lot of fun. Thank you to our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, and the party god, Andrew W.K., for our theme song, I Don't Know Anything. Check it out on iTunes or whatever. That was a HeadGum Podcast.